So um, I really do consider it a huge privilege and honor to be here again and to be opening up our series and to be speaking to you all. And I really do want to appreciate you for coming and making the time to be here. And I trust that it, it would be a blessing to each and every one of us. Um, I so appreciate the worship. I appreciate all the prayers that's gone into it. There's a team of people praying every Sunday and beforehand. And so we really are expectant of God to move. And, and that even as we see in Genesis, when God speaks something, the end result is that it happens and that it is declared to be good. So each one of us can expect something good to happen to us today if we receive God's word, because that is the principle that is set right here in Genesis. And so I trust that you would all be blessed and receive something and and leave this place changed and transformed by the power of God and the power of his word. So thank you for that. Great. Well, so the topic that I'm going to be handling is the first three verses of chapter one. Um, I'm sounding a little bit, is it okay? I'll just keep going. It's... uh, echoing in my ear. Anyway, so, um, but many, many Bible scholars and teachers of the Bible or theologians will tell you that if you can get a grasp of Genesis 1, or Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you will be a blessed person. There'll be so much that you understand and you'll be set up for, for life and for the understanding of things in life because in these three chapters, much of life is set Many say that the whole rest of the Bible is actually feeding off that and explaining back to it and working from that. So these are significant times that we are going to be spending together. And um, so what we mean by the fact that if you get those first three chapters is that you, you will have a better understanding of who God is. You'll have an understanding of who you are, where you come from. You'll have an understanding of the world of, its, of the devil, temptation, and sin. You'll get an understanding of how relationships work, marriage, and every other relationship. You get an understanding of how, what the relationship between work and rest should be. You'll have an understanding of the beginnings and the endings of things. You get an understanding of time and infinity. It's huge subjects. It's beautiful things. So... I think it is a worthwhile thing for each and every one of us to really get stuck into this. What is more than just these is that you would actually have an understanding and an ability to answer what the so-called philosophers or physicists out there say, namely to answer the, the great big questions that still remain unanswered in physics. Because it's right here. It's right here. To answer the questions that what is matter made of? In other words, where does matter come from? Where does the energy come from that exists in the universe today? How did life evolve from non-living things? There's no answer in science for that. But we know the answer. It is here in Scripture. So I want to really stir you and encourage you to be a part of this series don't just come every Sunday and sit here and receive and listen and just take and leave again. But actually be an active participant. Be one that would, in these times, really get into God's Word. Engage with the Holy Spirit, the one who's, who's um, instructed Moses to write these words. The one who's got all the ability to explain it to you and make it real to you and make it come alive to you. But it takes an effort from your side to engage them. 
There's so much available out there. I want to encourage you, take a hold of it. Our Bible app gives you so numerous translations. Just read it. Read these three chapters and each of those translations. Fuss with it. There's numerous preachers on uh, YouTube. Listen to them. Obviously, the more reputable ones. <laughs> but do it. Go for it. Even the others. If you've got enough, if you are soaked enough in it, you will immediately identify the phony ones and the things that are wrong. Trust God's Spirit inside of you. But come on, let's be a part of, of the series. Let's all get stuck into it. Let's hold the preacher accountable. Let's hold each other and, and, and just feed into this series. And you will be blessed for it. And I believe us as a congregation would be blessed. Amen. So are you with me? Okay. So Genesis 1, chapter 1, to, uh, verse 1 to 3. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now, I think it will be totally unscholarly of me to speak about creation without addressing the elephant in the room, which obviously is the theories of evolution, because that is the thing that's out there, strongest opposition to belief around creation. So for us to, so I'd like you to allow me a couple of minutes just to speak into that topic and give you some handles on it. So let's look at the first slide here, it would be a definition of creation. So the Oxford Dictionary says that creation is the act or process of, of making something that is new or of causing something to exist that did not exist before. So from this, we then get creationism. And creationism is a belief that the universe was made by God exactly as, the, as it's described in the Bible. That's creationism. And creationists are those who believe in creationism. Now, Romans 4, 17, just as one example, says, The God who gives, gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So it's no surprise that Paul, and a matter of fact, every single author of the Bible was a creationist, or is still today a creationist. Okay, let's look at the definition of evolution. So evolution, evolution is a gradual development of plants, animals, etc. over many years as they adapt to the changes in their environment. So the concept of evolution actually says nothing about the origins of it. It just speaks about the evolving within a species, actually. So evolutionism is a belief in the theories of evolution and natural selection. So they've taken this and extended it by theorizing things around it. Okay? And evolutionists are those who believe that the theories of evolution and natural selection. Okay. So the evolutionists are the people who are the so-called enlightened uh, you know, philosophers of the enlightened era. And they are the ones who try to present the theories of evolution as an explanation of the origins, the existence, and the progression of creation or of the, of the universe. But please note that I said they are philosophers. They are not 
scientists. Because evolution is absolutely and utterly unscientific. So, that's a big statement. And I'll show you in this now, very simply, why. One quote that I came across said, that it is more likely for a tornado raging back and forth over a scrapyard for hundreds and hundreds of years to produce out of the rubble an Airbus 747 in perfect condition, fueled and ready for takeoff, than it is for the theories of evolution to be true. <laughs> so, why do I say that it's unscientific? Well, there are many, many reasons, but just to mention three very simple ones. The first is, who of you knows what the theory of, or, or the law of thermodynamics is, the first law of thermodynamics? Scientists in the class, or in, the, in the audience? I think we came across that when I was in grade eight, if I remember. So this is not upper end science. It's like right there. Okay. Do you know, Mikey, can you? <laughs> help, help their students, Lord. <laughs> okay, so the law of thermodynamics, if you have it there, says that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It can only be altered in form. So where does the energy come from that exists in the universe? Okay, secondly, who knows what the second law of thermodynamics is? <laughs> That's an easier one. <laughs> okay, so the second law of thermodynamics says that the entropy in an isolated system always increases. Now, what is entropy? Entropy is a theme to describe the um, measure of molecular disorder. Okay? So what this means in simple terms you've got the second law up there, is that all matter is in the constant state of deterioration. And we all know it. We once, we used to always camp at the same site uh, when I was growing up. Um, coming down, it was our holiday. And one year, we actually left a pig, a pig. I remember my camping pig. We picked it and I put it in a tree in that spot. And next year, we came back and it was the same spot. And I just thought, as we were setting up the tent, hey, is my pig still there? And I did, and I looked, and it was there. But as I took hold of it, it actually just crumbled. Steel pig, okay? Because of, obviously, deterioration. It's a natural law. So yeah, it tells you. Everything is in a constant state of decay. It does not go the other way, okay? So the natural progression of all matter is from order to disorder, never the other way around. Listen to this statement. The second law of thermodynamics expresses the fundamental and simple truth about the universe, namely that this order characterized as the quantity known as entropy always increases. In other words, everything is natural thing is to go from order to disorder. So it's actually a miracle that the atoms and everything hold together because they want to break out into disorder. Jesus, uh, Ingrid read it. Jesus holds it all together. We know that. The very existence of our body is together. God is doing it. So there's absolutely no evidence to show that a single cell or a cell has the ability to mutate upwards into a higher level of complexity. So science do believe 
true scientists, that there is evolution within a species, okay, over many years, but there is an evolving of a species to adapt. We know viruses do that. They adapt to the things so that they can get around certain things, but not to, to mutate to a higher level of complexity. It's within the species. So that evolutionists try to sell us. It's unscientific. There's no evidence of it. Absolutely none. So, also, where does matter come from? The best solution that they have to offer is the Big Bang. We all know that. Which happened billions of years ago, so-called, and every time new things come out, the amount of billions just increases how far back it happened. It's a poor, poor explanation. And no real scientist would adhere to that. They'll grab, they're trying to have it, but if anything else comes up, I'm sure they'll jump to something else. But it isn't. Okay. So, the last one. Do you know what the principle of causality is? <laughs> I'm sure you do. Okay. That says that for every, it's another slide there, for every effect, there's a definite cause. So to say that something just happened is utterly unscientific. It says any field of knowledge would cease to be scientific if it, if it abandoned the principle of causality. So the very first statement of the Big Bang makes them unscientific. These three, two simple laws already proves our unscientific evolution is. Our friends, we know what happened. God happened. That's what happened. But can I say immediately that us as creationists, which I am, do not believe that God happened and then evolution took over. God is not the Big Bang. God created everything into its perfect, complete, mature state as we see it right now. So if you still have the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? It's the chicken. Let me settle it. God created the chicken mature with the ability to procreate, therefore the, chicken, the egg. I hope it settles it. <laughs> okay. So Genesis 1.1 simply states, in the beginning God created. What is that created? It is the process of causing something to exist that did not exist before. So, out of nothing, God created what there is. Okay? So how did it all begin? Where does matter come from? How did love, life come about? Why is time linear? All those questions. The answer is God simply created it that way. Accept it. That's the way it is. You see, friends, science is not infinite. God is infinite. Science did not exist before creation. God existed. Science came into being as a result of creation. Therefore, science can explain to us how everything works now, the way it is. But it has no answer to how it all began. God was the only one that was there when it all began. So I think we would do well to take his account of how it all happened and believe it. You see, the study of the origins of the world and of the universe is not science. It's theology. It's understanding of who God is. 
That's what it is. So friends, creation is a miracle, full stop. It is a massive, cataclysmic miracle. And we know that miracles are things that happen that is unexplainable. That's what a miracle is. It's when God breaks into a situation, does something that cannot be explained. That's a miracle. And it's consistent through all the scripture. So, you may ask, well, can I be an evolutionist and a Christian? Well, let's look what the Bible says. Someone once said, before I read from the Bible, it says that creation is the hinge on which the door of redemption swings. Okay. Now, do you know that there's going to come a day when the angels are going to be proclaiming the gospel? Do you know that? It will be. Revelation 14 tells us. I wanted to read this to you. Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7 says, Then I saw an angel flying in midair, another angel flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, So this is the gospel, the eternal gospel that even the angels are declaring and will be declaring. It says, For God, um, sorry, it says, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. So you see, friends, creation is the door on which, or the hinge on which the door of redemption swings. For us to receive the good news of salvation that is available to each person through what Jesus did for us and accept him, you have to believe in a creator God. You have to believe the creation story because that's the way God said it is. And as I told you, these three chapters are so big because it gives us an understanding of all our life. So if you're going to write that off and argue that, you, you, you are no foundation. You are in like it's, what it says, the abyss. It's like something without a bottom. It's nothing there. No solid ground. So friends, I want to declare to you emphatically that I am a creationist. And I trust that you are too. Okay, before I get into the text, I want to just do two or one more quick um, definition to explain, and that is, what is the law of first mention? I don't know if any of you have come across that being thrown around, the law of first mention. Have you? Anyone? Not? Okay. Well, I'm sure you're going to be hearing it, at least from Nick's, Nick's lips over these times, because it is, it is, a, it is a very common, well, it's, it's, the thing explains Okay, so you can put up the slide. So Arthur Kendall tries to explain it to us in simple terms. Before you get to that, I'll just say another. It says that the, the, this thing, law of first mention, is a fund, says that the fundamental meaning of a doctrine or a concept is found the first time it is mentioned in Scripture. And otherwise, you should take particular note of the first time you come across a certain thing that is introduced to you because that sets the, almost like the parameters for what it is in the rest of Scripture. It says that, the first time it is mentioned, the Bible authors and God introduces it to us in its most basic form, the easiest to understand way, and then it gets expounded on later. Okay, that's what it says. Now, Arthur Kendall explained it this way. He said that the law of first mention is a time-honored hermeneutical method stating that the way a word is first used or a concept is first introduced in the Bible will be the way 
This word or concept is largely understood thereafter. Okay, so I'll read it again. But just to say, what is hermeneutical? If you do the next slide, it's quick. These are some synonyms of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is, is an exploration or inter- investigation or interpretation or unmasking. So if you are a Bible scholar and you have your subject of hermeneutics, it is how you interpret the Bible. It's teaching you the methods of inter- interpretation of scriptures. What do we do Who to do that? So if I read that again, then that Artie Kendall said, it says, the law of first mention, so if you can go back to that one, is a time-honored method of biblical interpretation, stating that the way a word is first used or a concept is first introduced in the Bible will be the way this word or concept is largely understood thereafter. Now, just to give you a quick, simple example. We know of the things of the birds of the air, that phrase, okay? Now, what this law says is, is whenever you then find that phrase, it should be consistent what it means. So the first time we come across that is when Joseph and, uh, was in prison and the cupbearer and the baker was with him, okay? And they had their dreams. And the baker's dream was that he had those things stacked on top of his head and then after three days and the birds come and they pick it out. So the birds of the air is a negative concept, okay? That's what you've got to understand. So that is like, yeah, so that's what happened. So then later when Jesus starts with the parables, we see the first parable he tells, he tells the parable of, of the sowing of the seed, okay? And the seed that lands on the hard soil in the road, what happens? The birds of the air come and pick it up. So it's a negative thing. It's the devil's influence to steal it away. So then another parable a little bit later, Jesus tells us about the kingdom of God that is like a tree that grows and ever increases and covers the you know, garden and animals can come in, into it. And it says, and the birds of the air can nest in its branches. It's not a positive thing. It's got to be consistent. So what that actually says is it warns us against false doctrines that would come into the church. It's not just that you can accept everything. So it right immediately says it is going to be big and increasing, but watch out. False doctrines will come. Be aware of it. So the birds of the air. So law of first mention is what helps you with that. I've heard many preachers where it has been said about how, you know, how beautiful it is. Everybody finds shelter, and it's not. The birds of the air got to be consistent. Okay, so that's what it means. Great. Okay, so now let me get into the text. Okay, so Genesis 1 verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God. Okay, now I could have stopped there and made a whole preach list of that. Those four words are so beautiful. <coughs> They're so incredible. They're so profound. Because it sets the scene of who this God is. In these four words, you see a couple of things which I'll elaborate on later, but just straight off the cuff, you see that God was and is and will ever be before anything else. God is. In the beginning, God. Okay? Important. So it says immediately there that God is infinite. It says that God is uncreated. It says that God is immortal, He's invincible. Because God created everything, he must be omnipotent. He can't create something bigger than himself or more powerful. So all that says that. It says that he is omniscient. He knows everything because he's formed us. So he knows how we work. He knows it all. Therefore, we should pay attention to what he says. It says all these things. It says that he is omnipresent. Everything is in him. The rest of the Bible is consistent with it. It says that the whole of creation is in the palm of his hands. In the beginning, God. 
And it says, in the beginning, God created. Now to go to that one. So if we translate that into the Hebrew, it reads like this, Bereshit Elohim bara. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I learned this. But what that Bereshit means, it says, in the beginning or at the start of all things. Okay? So at the start of all things, there was God, Elohim. But that word Elohim is a plural form of the noun. So right here, from the start, the, the, the God of the Bible is a plural God. Many people struggle with that concept, but in his first introduction, he tells us the first name used for him is in the plural. Yet the, the verb, para, that is used after, which means create, is, this, is the singular form. It's the word, it's the way it is used there is when the, that which precedes it is singular. So in these first five words, we get the whole understanding or the thing of the three-in-one God. And we'll be introduced to the other persons of the Trinity. But right up front, he tells us that he is plural yet singular. So God is three in one. God created the universe. Full stop. You've got to believe it. God is three in one. Believe it. That's the way it is. Then the other things will work its way out and you'll understand how it is. But you've got to start by believing it. This is what God is introducing to us here right away. Another very significant thing of this term bara is that it is only ever used, this verb, in connection with God. It doesn't ever speak of anybody else or anything else creating something using this word, only with God. Because it does not only mean created, it means to be created out of nothing. So we can create things. I do a bit of art things, even in my job. We can create things. We can make a crown for somebody out of just porcelain dust. We can create something, but it is out of something. God creates out of nothing. So this first five words settles evolution theories. Okay, so if I was to translate it in a bit more simple English, like I've explained to you now, that first sentence would read, uh, sorry, there's another part that I still left out, the heavens and the earth. Now, the heavens and the earth is just the term that the Bible uses to say the universe, everything that is, the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we could put it this way. We can say, in the beginning, the three-in-one God created all matter out of nothing. Why don't those put it, just put it like that? <laughs> so it's because it's exciting for us to unravel that the Bible says that those hidden things is for us to discover. That's, that's the privilege that we have with the Holy Spirit. And then get all excited about it and let it fill your life and take you into another level of relationship with Him. And so, again, I'm telling you, let's all study it together. Okay, so it's all beautiful. It's incredible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, but then, verse 2, the first problem arises right up there. It says, now the earth. So God focuses now on the earth. We really don't have much business for the rest of the universe, actually, because it's what's happening on the earth that's important. And so he starts focusing on the earth. He says, now the earth, this planet that I've created, there was actually a problem. And the problem is that it was formless and empty. Some translations say, now the land was wild and waste. 
or you could say it is unordered and uninhabited. And then the next phrase, which says, darkness was over the surface of the deep, is just another way of saying the same thing. It's actually another way of just saying that there was disorder on the earth. It's empty and void. And I don't know if you've come across this beautiful verse, but I found in uh, Isaiah 40, 45, verse 18. It says, so Isaiah is prophesying and says, um, this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Amazing, eh? So the purpose of the earth was that life should be sustained on it. God wanted to put us there. That's why he created it. So there was a problem. It was formless and void. It was empty. Okay? But now, remember, law first mentioned. So here we encounter the first problem. And God is now going to address that problem. And this sets a platform for us of how God addresses all problems in life. So we can take note of this and see what it is. So the rest of Genesis 1 actually explains how he does it. And we'll see that. We'll get there. I'm just going to go the first couple of verses today, but we continue to get there. So that's beautiful. So what is the first thing that God does? The end of verse 2 says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the first step of God addressing this problem of disorder, emptiness, is to have the Spirit of God hovering. So we've had incredible worship today already, and we have the privilege of it so many times, this, this ability to come together in the corporate setting and worship God. And in these times, God's Spirit is here, is present, is hovering. So right now, I can say to you, there are issues in your life, I know, because it's issues all of our lives, but God's Spirit is here hovering over that. That is step one. So well done for being here. You're in the right place because the Spirit of God is hovering and He is wanting to break in to bring solutions to the problems in your life. So the Spirit of God hovers. Now that word spirit is the ruach of God. It can also be um, translated as His breath or His invisible presence personified by his spirit. So isn't it beautiful? So God's breath is here. His presence is here. His invisible presence through his spirit. Intimate, personal, that he is right here with us and wanting to minister to us. So principle number one is let the spirit of God enter into a situation. Now friends, I venture to say that the spirit, what we see here is that the first um, person of the Trinity that we are introduced to is the Holy Spirit. We know it's the, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But God, first of all, shows us himself as plural, but the first person of the Trinity that he actually introduces is the Holy Spirit. And I won't venture to say that the first person of the Trinity that each and every one of us actually encounters in our life, even though we don't know it, is the Holy Spirit. Because you see, the work of the Holy Spirit, John 16, 8 says to us, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment that is to come. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to, to, to bring us to that place of having a revelation that Jesus is the Savior, 
and not just a man. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to take us and draw us into the presence of God. God sends his Holy Spirit to do that. It's like the hound of heaven to pursue us. The song says, you chase after me. It's through the Holy Spirit that God chases after us. So the first person we encounter is the Holy Spirit. And I think this is significant that that is what the Bible teaches us here. But the truth of the matter is, if I'm honest in my life, the Holy Spirit is not the person of the Trinity that I actually give, or put it this way, it's the one that I give least emphasis to many times. And I don't think that it should be like that. I think God is giving us something here that we all need to actually um, develop a deep, personal, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit ongoingly. No one is than the other, and we know they all feed back to one another and all that. It's not a hierarchical thing, but, but it is important. And I think the Holy Spirit gets neglected, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Because it's the Holy Spirit that is the one that actually sanctifies us, makes us to be like Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us and, and enables us to live the life we to live, gives us the gifts and, the, and, the, and the, um, all the qualities and things, that the fruits of the Spirit that comes through our lives. And He is the one that Jesus and the Father has promised to come and be alongside us, to counsel us. It's the precious, beautiful Holy Spirit. Great. In verse 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So God created simply through the spoken word. There are 43 verses in the scripture that says exactly that, that God created the universe through his spoken words. And that, friends, is again consistent throughout scripture. We see that when the words of God is spoken, the pattern that you see here, if you go further, it says, and God said, let there be, and then it says, and there was, and it was good. So when God's words are spoken, we should not be speaking our own words into situations when we want to see resolution and, and stuff. It is God's words. So if we have that relationship with the Holy Spirit that we can speak God's words, we will see that it will come into being and it will be good. That's the pattern that is given to us right here. Let there be light, and there was light. Now the light of God, so sorry, Jesus did the same. We see it in his life. He simply through the power of God's words that he spoke, things happened. We see the dead raised, calling, simply calling Lazarus. We see, we see demons leave people. We see the sick healed. We see brokenness restored. We see storms calmed through the spoken word of God. And we see problems solved. So today, trust God for his word to be spoken into your heart and solve the situation that you are dealing with right now. It's the words of God that we need to hear. And friends, what is the word that he actually spoke? What is the first thing that God then spoke into being? It is light. It is light. So he wants his light to come in. So his spirit needs to hover, his presence, his breath needs to be over the situation, and then light needs to enter. Now John 1, John chapter 1, verse 1. The next one says, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, of course, Jesus is the light. The Spirit is the personification of God's breath and His presence, and Jesus is the personification of the light of God that needs to enter into every situation. That's the steps to solve every situation that we face. Let God's Spirit hover over it. Seek His presence in the situation, and then open the, the door for God's presence through His Son, His light, to come in and be the light of life. Amen. I'd love for you to stand. And then I've got one more scripture that I'd like to share with us. But I want us to, to really allow God to minister to you right now. Minister to us. As it happened, Chris actually opened it, the whole uh, day here today with that verse, these scriptures. And I'm going to ask you to, to just, as a means of allowing the Holy Spirit to continue the work that he has been doing, or to actually close your eyes as you listen to this. And then as I'm going to be speaking a little bit over it. So just to, to distance yourself in a way from everything and all around you, and just to allow the Word of God to minister to you. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But that doesn't need to be so anymore. Your mind, your heart, does not need to be blinded anymore because God's light is here today. And it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So you see, friends, when, when I step into my child's messy or unordered or, can I say, chaotic room, the first thing that I do is to switch on the light or I fling the curtains open to let the sunlight shine in so I can see how to put things into order. When you need to sort out a broken relationship, be it a marriage or interpersonal relationship, you need the light of God to shine into the darkness. When you need to rescue a broken life from the pit of despair and depression and emptiness, you need the light of God to shine in there. Every single individual that ever lived before you encounter God, life is in a measure of chaos, actually a deep chaos. It is in deep despair. It is void, it is empty, it is ruled by confusion until the light of Jesus can break in or breaks in and shines into that life. And so today I believe that as you are here, you've heard it said, it has been proclaimed in worship. God's Spirit is here hovering over us. And what that Spirit is wanting to do is, is He is calling you. It is, is pulling on the doors, 
you know, on your heart to, to open up and to allow His Spirit to enter and that His presence, His light could come and Jesus, Jesus can enter into your life, bring solution to your problems or solve the confusion that is there. But you need to invite Him in. It's this weird thing. God pursues us, but He allows us the right, right to actually reject Him many times. But today is here, and I want to implore you to simply respond to Him. Simply open, open up your inner person to Him to come in. Whether it is for the first time to receive Him, or simply to allow Him into this situation that you are dealing with right now, that has been plaguing you, and has been um, just where you have not found breakthrough. He wants to bring you breakthrough, but you need to surrender. You need to surrender to the fact that He is the Creator God who's lovingly formed you. It says that you created through your spoken word, except when it came to man. There you formed us. It speaks about incredible intimacy and love and affection. Exquisite. That God who formed you is calling you to respond and receive Him and allow Him to come in. So I wonder if you wouldn't just do that right now. Just simply allow Him to come in and, and echo this prayer in your own heart, be it for the first time or just be it to, to accept Him and invite Him into a situation that you've been battling with. So Lord, as we stand here before you today, I want to thank you for your pursuit of us. I want to thank you, Lord, for your personal, intimate creation of each and every one of us. And I want to thank you that right now, you are calling, Lord. You are begging us to, to actually just respond and open up our hearts to you. And to know and to believe that your spirit will come in. Because that is what your word says. And that the outcome would be one that is good. Ultimately good. Not just temporarily good, Lord, with a happy expression or a happy day or two, but ultimately good because we are restored into perfect whole relationship with you and we can look forward to an eternity with you. Oh, Lord, where there's, there's trouble and even relational trouble, God, even the confusion of gender or all these things that are just plaguing so many of us, Lord we can allow you in and allow you to bring order in the midst of these situations and allow you to to actually Lord just just create wholeness right now wholeness and clarity of being clarity of me being a created being in your sight and being created the way you've made me and being created for greatness in you God not in our own we've been created Lord to have personal relationship with you and so we call out to you, God, to do that right now and trust you for it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So this song of worship is, is in many ways a response song to this because we are inviting your light in and I pray, God, that you would receive it now from us as we participate in this moment by worshiping you and inviting your light to come.